Welcome to New Life with Adam Camp. This podcast is a ministry of Rosemont Baptist Church in LaGrange, Georgia. Please visit us on the web at rosemontchurch.org. Enjoy the podcast. So thankful for the godly couples we have in this church that can inform us about what marriage ought to look like. Ms. Frances Watson is one of those beautiful examples. Uh, if, you, if you knew Mr. Arthur, he was a godly, godly man. and we were, uh, If you knew him, you're blessed to have known him. So I'm just thankful for those couples and look forward to the weeks leading up, uh, continuing in their study where we get to uh, hear from more and more of these couples. So let's pray and we're going to get started this morning. Father, we just thank you for these couples that are so precious, Lord, that have just given their lives to you that have faithfully served you, Lord, that have been faithful in their marriages to one another, couples like Francis and Arthur Watson, Lord. I just thank you for their faithfulness. I thank you, Father, that they have uh, provided us an opportunity to get just a little glimpse into their lives. And, Lord, I pray that through uh, these videos, just a little portion of their lives, Father, we would be encouraged. We would realize that God can do great things in our marriages. And then, Father, as we continue to study your word today, I pray you just open up the eyes of our hearts. May we understand who you are, Father. Speak very clearly to us through the power of the Spirit, Lord. I pray that we'd be transformed more into the image of your Son, Jesus Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Take your Bibles and open to Song of Songs, chapter 3. Song of Songs, chapter 3. We are continuing our study this morning through the Song of Songs. But before we delve into our text this morning, we're going to get there, I promise. I don't want to miss the opportunity with it being July the 3rd. To think just for a minute about the 4th of July tomorrow. As many of us know, the 4th of July, 1776, Declaration of Independence is signed. It really began the process of our freedom from Britain. But what a lot of people have probably heard but maybe aren't real sure about is kind of the heritage of our country, the Christian heritage. And so before I get into the sermon this morning, I just want to kind of give you a, a, a little bit of truth that'll maybe help you understand the 4th of July a little bit. I'm going to make a statement and then give you four truths, and you can write them down and do the research on them later yourself. But the, the statement is very simply this. Our country was founded on Christian principles, very clearly. I'm not saying all the founders were Christians. I'm not saying that they wrote the Constitution to be a biblical document. But I am saying that a lot of the founders and the way in which they wrote and their thought processes came from the scripture they had studied, came from a perspective of this Christian foundation. Now, what you're probably thinking is, I've never heard that before. Well, well, most of the world won't say that to you. A lot of the media won't say that to you. In fact, they'll say just the opposite. But I would say this, if you make the argument that our country wasn't really founded on Christian principles, you've either never really studied it or you're lying. Because when you take a look at what the founders actually said, the documents they actually wrote, the letters they actually sent home, you begin to kind of form this picture very clearly that we were absolutely founded with Christian principles. Now, I want to give you four things very quickly before I get into the text this morning that you can take and kind of do some research on your own. The first two are quotes. The first quote is from John Adams. John Adams was the second president of the United States. He was very influential in the writing of the Declaration of Independence. Most people think about Thomas Jefferson, and he actually penned it. But there was actually a small committee. John Adams was part of that committee that wrote the Declaration of Independence. John Adams said this, second president of the United States. Listen to his words. The general principles on which the fathers achieved independence 
were the general principles of Christianity. I will avow that I then believed and now believe that those general principles of Christianity are eternal and immutable as the existence and the attributes of God. John Adams, the second president of the United States. Another quote from John Hancock, president of the Continental Congress, governor of Massachusetts. He signed his name really big so everybody could see it. And that's why we say I'm going to sign my, Jan, my John Hancock. Here's what he said. He called the state of Massachusetts to pray, quote, that universal happiness may be established in the world and that all may bow to the scepter of our Lord Jesus Christ and the whole earth be filled with his glory. Isn't that interesting? Now, I'm just, I'm just giving you a sliver, by the way. You can spend as much time as you want to researching these two men, but, but many, many more that signed the Declaration, that signed the Constitution, that were involved in the foundation of our country. You should spend some time researching. I'm going to give you two other things. You ought to write this down if you're taking notes. You can look it up later. The New England Primer. P-R-I-M-E-R. New England Primer. Here's what Wikipedia says about the New England Primer. The New England Primer was the first reading primer designed for the American colonies. It became the most successful educational textbook published in the 18th century and became the foundation of most schooling before the 1790s, right? So this was the earliest textbook in the colonies, foundational. It became foundation to most schooling before 1790. You say, why would you tell me about the New England Primer? What does that have to do with anything? The New England Primer was basically the Bible in summary. That's what it was. They taught these kids how to read based on the truths of Scripture. They taught them the alphabet based on verses found in the Scripture. And so the, the first, let me just kind of make it real simple for you. The first public school textbook found all of its content from the Word of God. Isn't that interesting? Now, a lot of people won't tell you that. They, they want to shy away from that. They're embarrassed about that. But that's the truth of the matter. You do the research on your own. Here's what one scholar said about the, pr the primer enabled the child to define self by relating his life to the authority of God and his parents. Isn't that a novel idea? First public school textbook. And then the last thing I'm going to share this one again. I'm just giving you just a real brief picture here. The Mayflower Compact. You should read about it. When the, when the people sailed from Europe and they came to the Plymouth Colony and they wrote kind of the first rough form of governance, they gave three reasons for the reason they came to America. What three reasons do you think these pilgrims gave for leaving their homeland, sailing across the Atlantic, forming this new colony. Here are the three reasons they gave. You can look it up on your, on your own. New England, I mean, the Mayflower Compact. They came for three reasons. The glory of God, the advancement of the Christian faith, and the honor of king and country. Isn't that interesting? Why did they come to America? To glorify God, to advance the Christian faith, to honor king and country. Now, our founders understood that true freedom comes only through Christ. Now, we don't talk about this a lot, and a lot of people don't bring this up, but I hope maybe as our understanding about our founding increases and we understand kind of where we've come from, maybe it'll help us understand where we ought to be going. Maybe it'll help us better chart a course as our country moves forward. So tomorrow as you celebrate the 4th and the freedom and the fireworks and all the fun things you're going to do, remember kind of the Christian heritage that our country was founded upon. Now, let's jump into Song of Songs, chapter 3. 
I want to summarize very quickly kind of where we've been. We're going to get right into the text this morning. I've said from the beginning of this study, and I will say it again this morning, that this idea of love and romance and sexuality and passion and intimacy, all those things were created by God. They were God's idea. He gave them to us for us to enjoy. We don't need to shy away from them. We don't need to be embarrassed about them. The problem is that sin has corrupted those things. Sin has corrupted our understanding of those things. And so I think it's important that we understand the truth of God's word, what God's word said, and figure out how we can take this truth and apply it to our lives. That's what this series is all about. And so I want to just summarize very quickly from last week, and I'll say this again. All of our sermons are available in podcasts. So if you haven't heard specifics from last week, you can go back and listen. But we kind of talked last week, one of the main ideas we covered was this idea of desire with restraint. We said there's this couple that's in love, they are, they are uh, desiring to be with one another, there's this idea of passion, but even within their desire, even within their, their uh, thoughts of one another and being together, there was restraint. And so I just kind of encourage those people that are dating I encourage those people that are engaged to, it's one thing to have thoughts and to desire, it's another thing to act upon them. And so I just want to encourage these people, set very clear boundaries. If you're dating somebody, you need to have very clear physical boundaries. If you're engaged to somebody, you need to have very clear physical boundaries. Why? Because this is what the Word of God teaches. And then we talk kind of to the married couples. And we read that verse in chapter 2, verse 15. It talks about the foxes that get into the garden and eat up the things that have grown. And we said there's this, there's this application to our lives that there are things that can get into our marriages. There are things that can get into our relationships and they can destroy those relationships if we're not careful. And so we've got to guard against those things that get in and destroy. And I gave you five things. I'm going to give them to you very quickly again. These are issues that couples struggle with. Number one, money. We said the number one issue that couples still struggle with is money. And it's not about the amount of money, it's how the money is spent. Getting a budget together. Sometimes there's a spender and sometimes there's a saver. And you've got to kind of find out where the middle ground is. So money issues are one of the things that can cause problems within marriage. The second thing we said, communication. You need to have regular, ongoing, honest communication with your spouse. If you've kind of reached a point in your relationship as a married couple where you say, you know, I'm not really sure we're talking much anymore. We used to communicate. Now we don't do it anymore. We, we just don't talk. We don't have time to talk. I would encourage you to examine that. Red flags should kind of be going up in your mind because communication is a big, big part of marriage. The third thing we said, issues that we have to deal with are family issues. In-laws, children, how to raise them, decisions to make, how to discipline them and priorities and all those sorts of things can cause problems within the family. Fourth, and again, I'm just running through these. You can listen to the podcast from last week for details. Intimacy, the idea of spending time physically together and what that looks like. And then the final thing, and I said this kind of affects all the other things, is this idea of the busyness of life. If we're not careful, our busyness affects the way we communicate. It affects our intimacy. It affects our family. It affects all the parts of life that we can struggle with. And so I just would encourage you in your walk in your marriage to guard against the busyness of life. Certainly don't let the busyness affect everything else in your marriage. Now, 
Having said all that, again, that's just a quick review. We ended last week with this idea of kind of the celebration and the hope that we find in marriage. That same idea of celebration and that same idea of hope is what we're going to see today. So we're in Song of Songs, chapter 3, beginning in verse 6. And let me just kind of tell you where we're going here. We've led up to the point where the couple has been dreaming, they've been thinking, they've been excited, but they haven't come together yet. In Song of Songs, chapter 3, beginning in verse 6, we're leading up now to the wedding day. This is going to be the wedding day, eventually the consummation of the marriage. And so we're going to walk through that this morning, beginning in chapter 3, verse 6. Who is this? This is the woman speaking. Coming up from the wilderness like a column of smoke, perfumed with myrrh and incense, made from all the spices of the merchant. Look, it's Solomon's carriage. Escorted by 60 warriors, the noblest of Israel, all of them wearing the sword, all experienced in battle, each with his sword at his side, prepared for the terrors of the night. King Solomon made for himself the carriage. He made it of wood from Lebanon, its posts he made of silver, its base of gold, its seat was upholstered with purple, its interior inlaid with love. Daughters of Jerusalem, come out. And look, you daughters of Zion, look on King Solomon wearing a crown, the crown with which his mother crowned him on the day of his wedding, the day his heart rejoiced. Now let's pause there for a second. Look at truth number one. Here's the first thing I want you to see in this scripture. Number one, we should celebrate the beauty of marriage. We should celebrate the beauty of marriage. Now let me just be clear about something here. We're we're looking at a wedding here. We're looking at a fancy wedding, and we're going to talk about that, and we're going to talk about weddings and kind of what that looks like in Scripture. But I want you to understand, we don't just need to celebrate the wedding day. We should celebrate the marriage. Does that make sense? If you were to think about a graph, right? Imagine I'm drawing a graph, and and, and over here is the wedding day, and this is your happiness and your excitement and your celebration. For far too many couples, as we move beyond our wedding day into marriage, our level of excitement drops, doesn't it? Our level of joy and happiness drops if we're not careful because what happens is we get involved in life and the world and there's so many things that deter us from working on our relationship and the small things that we notice about our spouse that weren't a big deal when we're engaged become a bigger deal, right? And we begin to argue over them. And if we're not careful, the celebration of the wedding is the most joyous moment you ever have in your marriage. It shouldn't be like that. Imagine if we could keep the celebration and the excitement of marriage going throughout all the years. Imagine if we could celebrate marriage very similarly the way we celebrate the wedding. Now I want you to notice what's happening here in these verses because Solomon has returned. This man has returned. Remember he came last week and invited the woman to come out. She said no. He's come back this time with this procession. Look at verse 7. He's escorted by 60 warriors. Verse 8, he's wearing, these warriors are wearing swords. They're experienced in battle. They're prepared for the terrors of the night, right? They're prepared to defend this couple. Verse 10, the carriage is made of silver. Its base is made of gold. It's upholstered with purple, which is kind of a sign of royalty, right? We, we see that this man is demonstrating to this woman that this is a big deal. He's celebrating the wedding, but he's also celebrating the marriage to her. Now, I did some research, research on weddings because I was just kind of curious myself. And, and you may be surprised by some of these. You may already know some of them. But I thought it'd be fun just for a few minutes 
to think about what a big deal weddings still are. And so I'm going to ask you a couple of questions. You can kind of think of the answer in your head, and then I'll give you the head, give you the answer as we kind of walk through some of these facts. As we think about the big deal of weddings and how important they are in our society, in the United States alone now, what do you think the average cost of a wedding is in the U.S.? You don't have to holler it out, but just think. Average cost of a wedding in the United States. It's so funny. I see couples look. What do you think? I don't know. What do you think? Average cost of a cup of a wedding in the United States twenty six thousand four hundred dollars. No kidding. I have three daughters. <laughs> you know, I, I I multiply that number times three. I think I could buy a really sweet car with all that money. Three daughters. Those of you that have daughters, you don't think about that kind of stuff, do you? Until they kind of get the age of being married. Twenty six thousand four hundred. Average cost of a wedding dress. for a dress you wear one time. Interesting. Woo, okay, moving on. According to Bride's Millennium Report, how much money is spent each year in the United States on wedding gifts? Now, these are just people that are registered, by the way, that have signed up and somebody's bought their gift. How much is spent in a year on wedding gifts? Somebody throw out a number. Three million a billion, 19 billion with a B. I've got three, yes, praise the Lord. Maybe they'll get a lot of gifts, that's what I'll pray for. The average guest spends between 70 and $100 per gift. Some of y'all think, I ain't never spent $100 on a wedding gift. The entire wedding industry per year, 72 billion. Worldwide, what city do you think marries the most people in a year? Vegas, right? That's what we thought. It's number two with 114,000. Number one in the world, you'll never guess it. Istanbul, Turkey. 166,000 people per year. Who knew? Guess if you want an exotic location. Istanbul's beautiful, by the way, but that's where they marry the most people. Weddings are a big deal all over the world, aren't they? I've had the opportunity in, in some of my travels to be able to go to weddings. You, you may not know this. I should put this on a resume one day. Maybe I'll never need another resume. But if I ever need another resume, if y'all get tired of me one day, I'll redo a resume and I'll put this on it. I actually preached a wedding in Romania. How cool is that? You're supposed to go, wow, right? Have no idea why they asked me. I was just the American guy there. They thought it'd be cool, I guess. But I spoke at a Romanian wedding. It was interesting because it took place kind of in the church service on Sunday morning. So we started the service like we normally do. About halfway through the service, the bride and groom arrive and the wedding kind of starts. It was just, they just kind of integrated into it. It was interesting. Then you go to the reception. You eat this, this big meal and you get up and you start playing games and you think it's over and you play games for about an hour. And then you go sit and you do another meal, games, another meal. All day, seven meals, massive meals through the course of the whole day. It lasted well into the night. They say they get you up to play games to burn off some of the foods you just ate, literally, because you sit back down and eat again. I've been to a wedding in Africa where people kind of have this long procession of dancing into the village with the bride and groom and, and a lot of uh, kind of imagery there and the things that they wear and what they're doing. We went, the last time we were in South Asia, we got the opportunity to go to a wedding. The, the place we stay, this is really neat, the kind of the relationship we've built with some of these guys there, the locals. The guy in the place we stay was getting married and invited us to go to his wedding. 
And so we got to go to his wedding. And the procession for that means that we kind of get in line in the city at night. This is the way it works. And um, the, the groom is in a little car. All of his groomsmen and friend kind of walk in front of him. And they have these massive, massive loudspeakers blaring music as loud as you can possibly imagine with people that literally are carrying about six-foot-tall fluorescent bulbs lit up through the city. It's strange, I know. Shooting fireworks off. The guy with us said, listen, you need to take earplugs. And we're like, nah, whatever. I put in earplugs about 10 minutes into it. It was loud. That's just what they do. And it's, it's bizarre because the men dance together. And I mean they dance. Curtis was with me. They're, they're into it, man. They are into it. And uh, they try to get, Curtis, they try to get us out. And we were like, no, 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 we're not, we're not into that. But still, marriage is a big deal, right? Weddings are a big deal all over the world. People celebrate it, right? We should, we should celebrate weddings. But just but think through with me. What if we could, and not to the level, I get this, but what if our marriages could be celebrations? What if we celebrated our spouse on a regular basis? Right, not, not with 60 armed guards necessarily, but what if we celebrated with a bouquet of flowers every now and then, men? Wouldn't that be a novel idea, right? A card, planning something nice together, right? We ought, we ought to be intentional about celebrating our marriages. Now, pull up verse 11, because look at what happens in this, in this wedding, in this scene. Verse 11 is an interesting one, because the woman is speaking, and she says to her friends, come out and look, you daughters of Jerusalem, right? These are her friends. Come out and look. Look on King Solomon wearing a crown, the crown with which his mother crowned him on the day of his wedding. The day his heart rejoiced. Now, there's several things in 11 I want you to see. The first is this idea of approval. This girl wants the approval of her friends, right? So come out, daughters of Jerusalem. Look. So kind of come out and be a part and kind of show me the approval. Show me your approval. But notice this guy's wearing the crown that his mother crowned him with on the day of his wedding. So, so not only do we see the approval of the friends, we see the approval of the family. You understand that? I, I would just kind of encourage you and, and, and maybe even caution you, if you're not yet married, if you're engaged or dating or thinking about marriage, you, you should certainly listen to godly friends. That sh- should be part of your decision. But you should absolutely listen to your parents. Because believe it or not, your parents have been married before and know a little bit about it. Isn't that amazing? I can say this because my kids aren't in here. I said it briefly last hour. But you know, sometimes as a parent, the older your kids get, the dumber you get, right? You've been there, right? And my kids are really not that bad about it. But there are times when my daughter will explain something to me as if I've never seen it before, right? I'm like, how did I ever survive before you came along? And I remind her, you know, I, I did, believe it or not, I was 15 once. So I know what you're going through, right? So as we think about marriage, one of the best resources we have are mom and dad, especially godly moms and dads. You know what, what she said was just beautiful to me when she's talking about Darren, Miss Francis Watson. If you don't know Miss Francis, you should get to know her. And Darren, he's precious. But she said he watched what his daddy did. Did you notice that? And he used to, daddy used to say to mama that you look pretty. And so guess what Darren does? He goes and tells mama, you look pretty. We've got this responsibility, moms and dads, to, to, to lead our kids. But oftentimes we lead them by example. And so the hope is they can watch us and the way we interact and the way that we love each other and the way we spend time together and how we treat each other. And that's the sort of husband they want to find. That's the sort of wife they want to find. 
So you need to listen to parental advice. And then look what happens in verse 11. When, when you've got this great festival, this celebration, you've got the approval of the friends, you've got approval of the mom. Look at the end of verse 11. Pull that back up if you would for me, please, Stephen. Right, come out, look, daughters of Zion, look on King Solomon, wearing crown, the crown in which his mother crowned him on the day of his wedding, the day his heart, what? Rejoiced. See, he's rejoicing. Why? Because God has given them this beautiful gift of marriage. See, it's, it's a gift that God ordained for us. Did you know that? God desires you to rejoice in your spouse. God desires you to rejoice in your marriage. God desires you to rejoice in living with this person you've committed your life to in marriage and bringing glory to the Lord in the process. Ephesians 5, 31 and 32, Paul, speaking about the idea of marriage, says this, For this reason, a man will leave his father and his mother, be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. Now here's what he says, verse 32. This, this is Paul now. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. See, Paul says, when you live your life in a marriage to bring honor and glory to the Lord, when you find joy in your spouse, when you celebrate your marriage because Christ is at the center of it, guess what happens? Not only do you rejoice, but it's a picture of the relationship between Christ and his church. So your marriage can be a demonstration of the glory of the Lord. See, other couples and other people can look at your marriage and how you've built your life, and they ought to be able to get this picture of how Christ loves the church. We should celebrate not simply the wedding, we should celebrate the beauty of marriage. Now let's continue, chapter 4. Now we've had this processional no mention is made of the actual ceremony. Scholars kind of debate as to why sometimes the ceremony wasn't as big of a deal. But the ceremony has obviously taken place beginning in chapter 4, verse 1, and now we're moving very quickly to this idea of consummation, okay? Now, again, I'm going to spend a little time talking about that this morning. Next week, we're going to delve a lot into it. I'll just remind you again, I'm going to be careful in my words. I know there are little ears, but we need to think about these things. We need to talk about them because they're found in Scripture. We don't need to shy away from them. We need to understand them in the context of marriage, in the context of the glory of God. So let me just kind of tell you what's about to happen. This couple has been married now. The processional's over. The marriage is over. They're finally together physically. I want you to watch the progression here. It's very interesting. This man, as he loves his wife and appreciates her and notices her beauty, starts at her face and her head and works his way down. Very interesting. Look at verse 1 of chapter 4. Some of y'all are thinking, I never knew this stuff was in the Bible, man. Woo, how beautiful you are, my darling. Oh, how beautiful your eyes behind your veil are doves. Your hair, and let me just stop for a second, because these, these um, compliments may not seem like compliments to you, okay? We'll, we'll get there in just a second. Your hair is like a flock of goats. Isn't that beautiful? You should write that in the Valentine's Day card, just coming up Valentine's Day, man. Descending from the hills of Gilead, verse 2. Your teeth are like a flock of sheep, just shorn, coming up from the washing. Each has its twin, not one of them is alone. He's happy that his girl's got a mouthful of teeth. I mean, it's just, I told the other, other servers, I heard a guy talking one time about unity. He said, you know, if a man has only got two teeth in his head, they look better if they're together. 
And each one of her teeth have twins. So he's happy that her teeth look that way. Verse 3. Your lips are like a scarlet ribbon. Your mouth is lovely. Your temples behind your veil are like the halves of pomegranate. Now to her neck. Your neck is like the Tower of David, built with courses of stone. On it hang a thousand shields, all of them shields of warriors. Your breasts are like two fawns, like twin fawns of a gazelle that browse among the lilies until the day breaks. Now he's thinking now, until the morning light comes, until the day breaks and the shadows flee, right? All through the night I will go to the mountain of myrrh and the hill of incense. You are altogether beautiful, my darling. There is no flaw in you. Here's the second truth this morning. We should celebrate physical intimacy within the marriage. We need to celebrate this gift of physical intimacy within the marriage. Now, he uses, as we kind of talked through this and saw just a few minutes ago, he uses compliments that sound strange to us, right? And it's interesting when you read the commentaries and the different scholars because they disagree about what these compliments mean and why they would have been, why they would have been a big deal. But again, we, we don't want to get lost in the minutiae here. It's very easy to get lost in the details and start thinking about sheep and goats. And it, This is poetic, right? So let's kind of rise above that. Let's get up out of the weeds and let's take a look at the big picture here. We don't really know why these are compliments to this woman. We don't understand that. Uh, ancient Israel, a thousand years before Christ, we don't understand why this would have meant something to her. But here's the big picture. Whatever this man said to this woman was a compliment to her and she appreciated it. Okay? We don't understand what it meant, but obviously she liked it. So here's the application, men and women. We need to figure out what our spouse likes and do those things, compliment them in those ways. You understand? Like, man, you, you should know what kind of flowers your wife likes. You just should. If you don't figure it out. You should know the kind of restaurants that, that he wants to go to on special days, ladies. Or she wants to go to on special days. You should understand the things that please your spouse. You should understand the things that they consider compliments. The things that they do. Like my wife, for example, she doesn't like red roses. That's kind of the, the standard, right? Guys, the red rose, right? But she doesn't like She likes a different color rose. So I kind of learned that the hard way. I bought red roses. I was so proud of myself. And she oh, they're pretty. You know, they're nice. Well, I didn't know until a few years into our marriage that she wanted a different color rose. So if I'm going to demonstrate to her and appreciate her and show her love and give her the things she wants, I'll buy her the color rose that she likes. We, we figure out how to compliment our spouse. We figure out what they like, and then we do it. Right? So we're, we're leading in, this, in these verses very quickly to this idea of consummation, right, in the marriage, the physical intimacy. It begins by complimenting her head and her face and kind of working his way down. But I want to say to you as we kind of think through this, if we're going to talk about celebrating physical intimacy, I want to give you biblical reasons we should celebrate it. Because there are all sorts of reasons the world would give you for celebrating this oneness between this couple and physical intimacy. I want to give you five biblical reasons. What does the Bible actually say about physical intimacy, about sexuality that we ought to celebrate. I'm going to put them on the screen, walk through some scripture, and think with you through them together. Here's the first reason. We should celebrate physical intimacy because of the creation of life. When a husband and wife come together as one, it creates life. Now, you think about, just for a second with me, and I have four children, and it always just, when I kind of took a step back and kind of... It, it, thought through and examined as we went through the process of pregnancy and the ultrasound. We are, as scripture says, fearfully and wonderfully made. I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a 
beautiful picture within the mother of the glory of the Lord. And the fact that God gives us this gift that, that a man and wife can create a child like this together is just unfathomable to me. It's a gift. God says, I want you to have this. It's a beautiful picture, the creation of life. Genesis 1, 28, God blessed them, speaking of Adam and even said to them, you remember what he said, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it, right? One of the reasons we celebrate physical intimacy is because it leads to the creation of life. Another reason we celebrate biblically is because it creates oneness within this couple. Continuing the story in Genesis chapter 2, God creates the woman, brings the woman to Adam, and he says, this is now bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. This is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. See that? Oneness. There's the idea of oneness physically, we understand that, and that's maybe the easiest one that people can define, but there should be this oneness of spirit as well, this oneness of cooperation. You know, when I counsel couples about this idea of oneness, what does this mean? When you start really kind of putting flesh to this, it means a lot of things. It's not his and hers anymore, it's ours, right? Everything is one, We're, we're together now. We should celebrate marriage because of this idea of oneness. Thirdly, we should celebrate physical intimacy because it brings comfort. Now, this one is a little bit different for us because we don't necessarily think about that bringing comfort. But if you begin to study Scripture, and especially with this idea in mind, you find that there are a lot of Scriptures that speak to this idea of sexuality and physical intimacy within a couple, this idea of bringing those two people comfort. And there's several scriptures. For example, Genesis 24, 67. Isaac, we studied him in our study of Genesis, brought her, this is his wife Rebecca, into the tent of his mother Sarah. He married Rebecca, so she became his wife, and he loved her. And within the Hebrew, there's this idea of the physical union. He loved her, and Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. Isn't that interesting? His wife, through the oneness and the physical intimacy, brought him comfort. Sometimes we need comfort in our marriage through this gift. We should celebrate this gift that God has given us. Number four, we should celebrate physical intimacy because it brings us pleasure, very simply. We shouldn't shy away from that or be afraid to talk about it or be afraid even to preach about it because it's right here in scripture. That's the way God intended it to be. You understand that? When we get sidetracked with sin and what the world says, it becomes something vastly different. But the way God created a marriage is for a man and a woman through physical intimacy, through oneness, to experience pleasure. It's good. Ted Tripp, and we've had him here to speak. Some of you have heard him. Some of you have have read his book. He used to say, and we kind of laugh about this, Amy and I do. He used to tell his kids that within the marriage, that's where the good stuff is. He would say, he would tell his kids, or he would show his kids, that you, your, your kids need to see you holding hands and hugging and kissing because they need to grow up understanding that it's within the confines of a godly marriage that we receive pleasure from one another. Not from somebody else, not from the TV or whatever else we can think about, right? We shouldn't receive pleasure. We should receive pleasure in this godly relationship. And your kids ought to see that happening. We see that all through Scripture. We see that all through Scripture that physical intimacy should be celebrated because it brings us pleasure. And then number five, we should celebrate physical intimacy because it allows us to avoid temptation. I want to just read for you out of 1 Corinthians chapter 7. It's an interesting text, first five verses. You can read it later if you want. 
Paul is talking to the church at Corinth, and there's some, there's some, uh, uh, there's some idolatry issues and some problems with this church. And he says in verse 2, since sexual immorality is occurring, each man should have sexual relations with his own wife and each woman with her husband. And in verse 3, the husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife and likewise the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but yields it to her husband. In the same way, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but yields it to his wife. And then here's the warning in verse 5. Do not deprive each other, except perhaps by mutual consent, and for a time, so that you may devote yourselves to prayer, then... Come together again so that, here it is, Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. You understand that? When we enjoy physical intimacy within a marriage, it allows us oftentimes to avoid temptation. Husbands, if you are not meeting the needs of your wife, she could be tempted by something or someone else to meet her needs. Wives, if you are not meeting the needs, excuse me, wives, if you are not meeting the needs of your husband, he could be tempted by something or someone else that will meet his needs. See, we, we celebrate this idea of physical intimacy because it allows us to understand God's plan and oftentimes to avoid temptation. See, here, here's what God says to us. He says to us, I have created this idea of marriage I've given it to you to enjoy, to find pleasure in, to find closeness and oneness and physical unity. I've given you all those things so you can have joy and fulfillment. And God says to you, listen, if you'll just trust me and seek me, I will allow you to experience that within the marriage. And then when you do that, when you do that in the context of a godly marriage, your, your marriage can not only be great, not only filled with joy and passion and hope, but maybe the most important thing about marriage, I touched on it just a few minutes ago, is that when you love your spouse, when you trust your spouse, and there's godliness and Christ-likeness at the center of everything that you do, and you give for one another, there's this beautiful picture of marriage. You actually bring glory to the Lord through that marriage. Imagine how that will impact the people around you. Imagine how that will impact your children. Imagine how that will impact that lost couple that you're friends with, you go to dinner with every now and then, when they see the way you interact with one another, when they see how the man treats his wife, when they see how the wife treats her husband. When we do these things, we bring glory to God and we affect the world around us for his honor and for his glory. That's the kind of marriage we ought to strive to have. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for, again, the truth that you've been showing us, Lord, in this scripture. As we understand more and more what a marriage ought to look like and, and how, to, how we ought to treat each other and how we ought to celebrate, Lord, our marriages and our, our spouse. Father, I pray you would just right now speak to the heart of, of that person right now who's heard this sermon that's struggling, Lord. I know there are many. Father, I understand that there are marriages even within this church that are struggling. Father, I pray first of all that you would just surround that person with love and mercy and grace. You would help that person understand, Father, that through Christ all things are possible. Lord, you would help that marriage. You would strengthen that marriage. You would encourage that marriage. And Father, as, as this couple learns more and more about how they ought to treat each other and how they ought to live, Father, I pray that the wounds would heal, that you would 
Lord, begin to put their hearts back together. You would begin to heal their marriage. And Father, in that process, I pray that people would see that transformation and that ultimately you would receive glory because of who you are in the lives of this couple. Father, we love you and we serve you in all things. May you receive honor and glory in our marriages, in the way that we live our lives. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. You can stand. We're going to open the altar as we always do. You can pray where you are. You can come and pray here. You can stand in the gap for somebody else. But this is your time. As you process what the Lord has shown you, this is your time to respond this morning. You come. Thank you for joining today's sermon. We would love to hear how today's message blessed you. Use the Contact Us link on our website at rosemontchurch.org. God bless.